People have been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years. Understand at this time, understand at this time that there had been messianic movements, that there had been messiah figures, that there had been people, revolutionaries, that people had waited for who had come. People gather around them and people would get excited because they were finally saying, this is the person we've been waiting for who's going to finally come and overthrow the oppressed, filthy Roman government and we'll all be finally ushering and seeing the kingdom of God and his rule and reign. The problem with all these messianic movements over the years is that the leader would get killed, everybody would disperse, and nothing would happen. But then came Jesus. But then came this rabbi from a small town, Galilee. And he could heal the sick. He could open the eyes of the blind. He could even raise people from the dead. And everywhere he went and preached, thousands would gather to hear him. And so on that Palm Sunday, understand this, on that Palm Sunday, the people, when they sing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they are, make no mistake about it, they are seeing Jesus as finally this person, finally this revolutionary, finally this messianic figure who is going to come and finally usher in the kingdom in the way they envisioned it. Set them free from the oppressive Romans. And put Israel as a nation of promise once again. That's what they're waiting for. So when they sing, blessed, Hosanna, in the, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they add this little part, actually, that, doesn't, uh, that does not, is part of the psalm that they're singing. King of Israel. They're looking at Jesus and saying, he's the one, he's the one. Problem is after Palm Sunday, <laughs> nothing happened. Problem is after Palm Sunday, a few days later, um, he would be crucified on the cross. The problem is after Palm Sunday, the people came to recognize that he wasn't the one. So a few days later, do you remember? The people start shouting what? Crucify him. Crucify him. And despite what some of us may have heard, that somehow these were very fickle people who changed their mind, absolutely not. They're looking for a political Messiah in Jesus doesn't turn out to be him. What they didn't realize is that Jesus didn't come to be a better king of a better kingdom. Listen carefully. Jesus comes to be a completely different king ruling over a completely different kingdom. So you continue this series, we find ourselves skipping very quickly. We finished in chapter 3. We're at chapter 15 today. And we're going to be in chapter 15 and 16 today, Good Friday and Easter. Mark 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. Context, context. For the first time... For the first time in, in, in the journey of Jesus, Jesus finds himself for the first time, not in front of religious leaders, but in front of political leaders. For the first time, Jesus finds himself in Mark chapter 15, not in front of religious leaders, but Pilate, who represents the Roman government, the state, the Roman state. 
And you'll understand this. When Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? He's not asking a theological question. He's not asking Jesus, are you the Messiah of the Jews, of the Hebrews, who has been prophesied to come? That's not what Pilate is asking. What Pilate is asking is, are you a political military figure? Are you here to overthrow the Roman government? Are you a political revolutionary? Will your movement have any political ramifications? That's what he's asking. He could care less about who Jesus is in terms of what the Hebrews thought. Now, it's crucial for us to know and see. Look at his answer. Look at the answer of Jesus. He's deliberately, significantly sort of ambiguous or paradoxical in his answer, if you will. If send him to religious leaders a couple chapters back when they say, are you, are you Christ? Are you king of the Jews? Jesus says, absolutely. When he's in front of the for religious leaders, he's clear. When he's in front of the political leaders, they're saying, are you a political messiah? Are you a political revolutionary? Jesus' answer is what? I am. And I'm not. Yes and no. It's his answer. Literally, Jesus answers Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, which literally means you say, with the emphasis on you. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asks. Jesus says, you say it. What? You say it. His answer is deliberate. His answer is neither a denial or affirmation, where it's both a denial and affirmation. Jesus could have said, listen, Jesus could have said, no, I'm not a political leader. I'm just a spiritual leader. I just came to give you inner peace. I just came to God. And Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't say, I just came to give you inner peace with God. Jesus doesn't merely go, I just came so that you might have peace in your personal lives. And I'm not going to, what I'm going to do, have any impact on the political and social order. Jesus doesn't say that. Listen, this is so important. Un-understand this because without this, Good Friday doesn't make any sense and Easter doesn't make any sense. Jesus thought the gospel was constantly invoking the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And when people heard Jesus talk about the kingdom of God, nobody in his audience was like, oh, he came so that I might have personal peace. Nobody. Do you understand that? Nobody of his listeners thought he came to bring me personal peace. Everybody that heard Jesus invoke the kingdom of God knew, even though they were a little misguided about who this person would be and what he would do, they had no misgivings about the fact that the kingdom that Jesus was talking about would have real ramifications socially, politically. This is the way Jesus put it in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me. This is one of his first sermons. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says the gospel absolutely has political ramifications. Economic ramifications. Cultural ramifications. Physical ramifications. Every dimension of society. Every dimension of society. Nowhere did Jesus ever once say, I came so that you just have personal. No. So where do we get that from? Jesus says, I came to bring about a revolution that has impact on all of these areas. But please notice Jesus doesn't say to the answer, I just came to save you, give you peace, inner peace. But on the other, he doesn't say, of course, I'm a political leader. Jesus' answer, are you the king of the Jews? Is yes and no, I am and I'm not. What I'm about to do has ramifications politically, culturally. But here's the key. But I'm not a leader 
as you're envisioning me to be. I'm not the political Messiah as you're envisioning me to be. There's incredible balance in Jesus' answer. Let me just make capital applications and then we'll move on. If you want to follow Jesus at all, church, and I feel like more than ever, more than ever, in the culture that we find ourselves in, this balance that we need to find as followers of Jesus, this balance, this intentional balance of what Jesus says here is so critical. There's another place in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, we're going to look at briefly. Mark chapter 12, remember, the, uh, the gospel writer Mark moves very, very quickly. And so Mark chapter 11 is what we did today. Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday. And Mark chapter 12, Jesus goes into the temple and he cleans out the temple with whips. And the religious leaders once again are like, who are you? Who gives you authority to do this? And then we find this interesting tidbit about who Jesus is in Mark 12, 13, verse 13. It says, later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. By the way, this is what it looked like. Um, do you have this like that? That's what it looked like. And the, ins- and the image on there is image of Tiberius Caesar, who is the emperor. Okay, so this is what Jesus is looking at. And the inscription on this coin said, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus, which literally meant Tiberius king, son of God. And it was a claim to absolute allegiance. It's a claim of absolute allegiance. We'll come back to that. Verse 16. So they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus said to them, well, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Do you know why the people were amazed at Jesus? Keep in mind that up until this time, all governments are totalitarian and demand absolute allegiance. You don't question the government. The government says we've been sent by God. Kings, emperors, we've been sent by God. We rule on behalf of God. And they claim absolute allegiance, totalitarian rule of government. There's no idea of a limited state where you had space for human rights or protest. And the question that Jesus is being asked, stay with me here. The question that Jesus is being asked is, what's your political persuasion, Jesus? And there are two people that Jesus is addressing here. The first group of people were called the Essenes. Everybody say Essenes. Have you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? See, the Dead Sea Scrolls were ancient documents written in the first couple hundred years. And the documents were found in this community where the Essenes lived. The Essenes were people during Jesus' day who said, withdraw from society, withdraw from culture. Don't have anything to do with politics, don't have anything to do with culture. We are called by God to be separate and to be holy, and we are going to completely withdraw. Then you had the zealots. If I was around, I would have been a zealot. The zealots said, take power. Take power and rule militarily. The zealots were the ones who would rise, challenge the Roman government, said, take power. We are going to rule and challenge the Romans. So the Essenes and the zealots. And Jesus is being asked the question, whose side are you on? Are you with the Essenes? With y'all? Not, nothing to do with society? Or are you with the zealots? And Jesus says what? 
says, um, with neither. Jesus' answer is, I'm with neither. They want him to make a decision. Are you a political leader? Which particular politics? Which party? Which program? Which issues? Should we withdraw? Should we play? Should we, should we run for office? And Jesus simply says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Three quick applications, particularly in our day, and then we'll move on. Uh, I didn't know that this is part of American culture. You don't talk about these three things when you're with family. You don't talk about what? Politics. You don't talk about sex, religion. And then is it sex or money? Money? Okay. Because Koreans, we don't talk about any of that stuff and other things. You know, so we just like never. So we don't. Um, Jesus says here, uh, I'm envisioning a dinner conference. Jesus comes here and says, um, here's my followers when it comes to issue of political engagement. First, Avoid simple answers. Avoid simple answers. The question is, is it right to pay taxes, Caesar, or not? Should we or shouldn't we? Yes or no, Jesus, tell us. And Jesus doesn't say yes or no. Jesus doesn't say sure, nor does he say no way. He doesn't give in to what they ask him, which is simple answers. When people ask about his relationship to him, our relationship to him, he's very clear. Follow me, carry the cross. But when people ask him a question about what's a Christian's relationship to the state, government, political engagement, Jesus doesn't give a simple answer. So here's the application. Don't do to Jesus what he doesn't do to himself. Can I get an A? You thought, I was a little heady this morning. Don't do to Jesus. Did we give you an example of what I mean? It, 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 it bothers me and it depresses me when I hear Christians talk like this. Well, how can a Christian with a half a brain vote for him? Well, how can you call yourself a Christian and actually think that that's a part of what God's agenda? Well, how can you? How can, we heard this throughout the last two election cycles. People are constantly saying things like, how in the world can a Christian with half a brain, how can someone who claims to be a Christian vote for him or vote for him? And we said it about other sides. Democrats say it about Republicans. Republicans say it about Democrats. And you know what happens? Christians lost credibility because we used God to justify our politics. We lost our credibility in the public sphere because Christians use God. And please, if you're sitting here this morning, we all did it. The left did it. The right did it. The Democrats did it. We used God to justify our politics. And the culture at large just goes, we're not going to hear from you anymore. Why do we do to Jesus what he doesn't do to himself? Is it possible that on the basis of really deep theological convictions that somebody could actually have different views from you politically? Is that possible? Answer? Yes. The question isn't which side is God on? The question is, are we on God's side? Are we on God's side? He raises a simple answer. Secondly, okay, he avoids passive acceptance. What do I mean? Jesus, from what we can tell, was essentially the first leader to do this. This is powerful. He calls for a limited state. What do I mean? The answer, the answer when they say, what should we do? Should we, should we not? Jesus' answer is powerful. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. I mean, this, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, it's his money. Literally, it all belongs to him. Give to Caesar what is his. His image is on it. And then Jesus says, though, but God's image is on you. And give to God what only belongs to God, which is what? Your total 
absolute allegiance. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's his money. Give it to him. His image is on it. But God's image is on you. And only give to God what is his, which is total and absolute allegiance. There's a little wordplay here that doesn't come out in the English. That's just powerful. The question is, should we give to Caesar what is Caesar's? And the word give is a gift. It literally means as gives as a gift. But then Jesus, anybody a King James Version? Changes it and goes, but render to Caesar what is renders. You know what render literally means? To pay back what he deserves. They say, should we give to Caesar what is Caesar's? Give it to him. It's a gift. And then Jesus says, though, render to Caesar. Pay back what Caesar deserves. What does a tyrant deserve? It's his money. He owns all of it. Give it to him. But doesn't a tyrant also deserve some resistance? This is, you guys, where many Christians... Many Christians came up with this theology of civil disobedience and a call for limited government. I would argue that this is the place when Jesus pay your taxes. He's not for withdrawal, but he says, don't you dare agree to any government that makes unconditional claims on you. Don't you dare agree to any government that makes unconditional claims on you. Why? Because ultimately your allegiance belongs to God, simply put. When a law, a state law, a government law contradicts with God's law, God's moral law, Jesus says, resist it, protest it. So people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer comes around in World War II. And he and his people resist the Nazis. Why? Because they said our allegiance ultimately is to God. It's not to the state. Modern example, someone like Dr. Martin Luther King comes around. And we've quoted this before. Letter from the Birmingham jail. He's doing civil disobedience to protest segregation in the South. And a group of white ministers, of course, complained and criticized him and saying, why are you doing civil disobedience? And Dr. King writes this, right? By the way, he uh, got all of or most of his stuff from people like St. Augustine and St. Aquinas. He says, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws and unjust laws. Well, how does one determine whether a law is just or unjust, you ask? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law of God. And then he goes on and says, one who breaks an unjust law must do so openly and lovingly and with the willingness to accept the penalty. So Dr. King, with the Bible in one hand and with the Constitution in another, persuaded the people in the culture instead of just pronouncing judgment. Can I just say this? I, as a pastor, am passionate about seeing more Christians in our culture with the Bible in one hand and with the Constitution in another, instead of just pronouncing judgments, persuading people to say, we ultimately follow God. But when there are laws, when there are laws that are opposed to ultimate law of God, when there are laws that are unjust, when there are laws that are oppressive, when there are laws that don't value the dignity of human beings, then we stand on the side of God. We stand on the side of God. Uh, this might be a, a, a maybe a controversial, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go up and say this, because um, there are people in our church who are very, very passionate about immigration. Let me say this. 
The question we Christians shouldn't be asking just is, well, is, it's the law, we got to obey it. The question we need to ask Christians is, is the law just? Is the law just? Let me give you an example. 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act was a United States federal law prohibiting all immigration of Chinese laborers. It remains as one of the most significant restrictions on free immigration in U.S. history. Think about the laws, and we ask the question, are the laws just? Do they square with God's moral law? Third, he says, avoid misguided solutions. And I might be speaking to just a small number of people here this morning with this third one, but I need to say it. Jesus is not just against simple answers and passive acceptance, but Jesus rejects the idea that the main way or the primary way we deal with injustice in life is through political means. Jesus says, this is not the way we bring about the revolution that I'm about. It's primarily through political means. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. And Jesus says, I want my followers to resist totalitarianism. And on the other, but on the other hand, I don't want you to put your hopes in political process. That's not the way we bring about the kingdom of God. I've got some news. The epicenter of Christ's kingdom is not located at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It doesn't matter who sits on the White House. God's plans for his world has never been thwarted. It's not going to start now. It doesn't matter who sits in our government. We pray for them. We elect them. The Bible says God's plans are never going to be thwarted. So we vote. We elect, we pray for our leaders, but at the end of the day, God says, our hopes are not in this world in political means. Our hopes ultimately lie when God is and what God is doing. Amen? Like I said, think about the conversation in our culture these days. Think about the conversation, the toxicity of it. Think about what Christians, what we Christians, what we Christians, a recent poll, recent poll asked a number of people in our country, who are some of the more prominent Christians? And the way that the people answered weren't actors, actresses, sports figures, or pastors. The most prominent Christians that people thought of were politicians. Politicians. People thought of politicians when they thought of Christians. Jesus says, I don't want you to withdraw, so be engaged. But don't think that the way you bring about the kingdom of God is by getting Christians elected and enacting Christian policies and legislation. Don't be seduced into thinking that the political power is ultimate. That was the Romans' problem. Political solutions will solve all problems. But Jesus says political power is penultimate. Political power is an inadequate vehicle for the enormous changes that I, the king, am about to bring into this world. I want to say this this morning. I love this song, Let the Church Rise. Do you know why? Because we need to be, we need to be this kingdom presence that reminds our culture that ultimately political solutions, left or right, Democrat or Republican, isn't enough. Do you know why? The problem isn't just out there. The problem is in here too. The problem isn't just out there. We demonize, we go, the problem is them. The, the problem is in here. And I want to declare this morning that the only solution to dealing with problems out there, but also the problem with a sinful heart, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The only solution, that means that the church needs to rise from its ashes because the church and many churches throughout this country come and say political ways is one of the ways. But we recognize that the problem with our social problems is not just because of system solutions. It's the human heart too. And the solution that we have as a church to offer is not just that we work towards changing structural systems, although that's incredibly important, but we also recognize that unless the sinful heart changes and the individual changes, you don't see community transformation, neighborhood transformation, city transformation, nation transformation, and world transformation. Let the church rise. We can say to our world because Jesus Christ died and rose again we can say to the world there is real solution to this new world coming and that begins with an internal heart transformation that moves out to change the world around us let the church rise let the church rise one last thing before we move on We should be involved in politics. The question isn't should we or shouldn't we. The question is how is our political engagement Christ-like? Can I just ask some of us, do we reflect Jesus even in the kinds of conversations we have with people who disagree with us? It's not just about whether we talk about it, but how do we have conversations? How do we treat people with completely different ideological views politically? What's the purpose of winning elections if we lose our soul in the process? Political activism devoid of love, people will not see Jesus in that. Political activism devoid of love, people will not see Jesus in that. The question for all of you young folks who engage in this large arena of politics, I'm telling you right now, it's not just, I'm right, I'm going to win an argument. The thing that they want to see is, how do you treat people who disagree with you? How do you talk to people who disagree with you? How do you actually engage somebody who thinks you're crazy? With love? With compassion? With mercy? I'm t- Christians would just stand out if we just even engage in this toxic, toxic, toxic culture. Just learn how to engage in a way that was like Jesus. People would just go, wow. 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 So Jesus, what should we do politically? Engage? Yes and no. Come down, which is a simple, no, no simple answers. Paradoxical. Jesus Christ, are you leading a political movement? Well, yes and no. If it's two yes or two no, then we're in trouble. Okay, then how does Christianity, if it's not all that direct, if it's not just taking power and ruling Christ's name, how does Christianity change culture? And this is the thing that's amazing. By the way, Thank you for those of you that stayed with me those last like 15, 20 minutes when I talked about politics real heavily because I know that that's like Daniel and maybe like one other person in this church. But the rest of us, the rest of this sermon will be applicable. So how then do the rest of us, 99.9% of us who don't get involved in policy legislation, how do we engage? What's our call? 
This is where we find the profound truth of this Jesus. Look at him. Oh, so good. Verse 3, the chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Pilate saying, look, they're railroading you. He's a member. He's a politician. They're saying all these things against you. Say something. Defend yourself. And Jesus says, nothing. And Pilate was amazed. And this isn't amazed like, you are such an idiot. What are you doing? I'm amazed. The word amazed has this connotation of positive, of wonder and awe. Do you know why? I'm just envisioning this. Pilate is sitting there and he's observing Jesus right here. He's standing. There's a crowd. The religious leaders and the chief priests. Jesus standing here. And the reason why Pilate is amazed is because he's looking at Jesus and he thinks two things. Number one, the, fr- the, the, the crowd is frantic. They're almost crazed. They think that Jesus is going to get off. And they're seething. And there's Jesus calm. Inner poise. Inner calm. The crowd, they want to use their power. They want to use their power to destroy Jesus, to kill Jesus. And here is Jesus with all the authority and power in heaven laying it down in service of his enemies and loving his enemies. And Pilate's sitting there going, inner calm, inner voice. Laying down his power, laying down his authority, forgiving his enemies, loving his enemies. This is the reason why all the revolutions, history of the world never works. Do you know what it looks like? All the revolutions, human revolutions of the world, the people that were oppressed, marginalized, they rise to power. Once they have power, what do they do? Then they execute, destroy, and marginalize their enemies. And the vicious cycle continues. We've been oppressed. We're going to take power. All we're doing is just rearranging the furniture. We were once out. Now we're in. You're out. Rearranging the furniture. And here comes Jesus who says, I'm not going to do that. Kill me. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to love. I'm going to forgive. You need to know this. 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 Do you know why Christianity spread like wildfire? Because the Two things that characterize Jesus came into his followers. The two things that characterize Jesus came into his followers. And they went out into their culture. And the world changed. What do I mean? Two things. One, in the face of oppressors, in the face of enemies, in the face of hating them, Christians stood with an inner poise and an inner calm. And Christians in the face of people that want to destroy them, instead of taking power and saying, we will destroy you, they lay down their power in service of their enemies. They lay down their power in service of their enemies. They lay down power in forgiving and loving their enemies. And by the hundreds and thousands and hundred thousands, Christians went out into the world following the way of Jesus. And they changed the world. Changed the world. Get this book. It's called The Rise of Christianity. I've quoted it often. It's by, it's by a guy named Rodney Starks. And he looks at the first two, three hundred years of Christianity. He says, why did they change? Why were they so powerful and changed the Greco-Roman Empire? Can I just give you some excerpts from it? In most of the cities, the ratio of males to females was 140 males to 100 females. Do you know why? Female infanticide. 
It was legally allowed. When a girl was born for the dads to go, nope, we don't want the girl, throw it out. Christians came along and said, we're not going to have any of that. Uh, do you know that married women in pagan societies were not allowed to have, you know, little thing on the side? They needed to be sexually pure. Do what you go. Well, that makes sense to me. The problem was that men were allowed to have little mistresses on the side. And Christians came along and said, we're not going to have any of that. Uh, if you were a woman and your husband died, Caesar said you had to be remarried within two years. Because in their perspective, there was absolutely no purpose for single women to be around until they were married. I know. You're sitting there and going, that is unbelievable. Christians came along. Do you know what they did? Christians created these beautiful communities for widows. That's why you find so many references to widows in the New Testament. Christians came along and said, no, no, no. We don't, we don't want you to feel like you have to get married. We want to provide a community, a space for women, single women, where if you don't want to get married, you don't have to. We will be your community. And the world looked at them and said, what? Uh, Christians uh, love the poor. We have a letter from this guy. Uh, I like showing you guys this guy. His name was Julian, Emperor Julian. Also called him the apostate because he wanted to revive paganism. He was really bothered by the spread of Christianity. So they want to end it. But what he saw as he writes to one of his friends about Christians and their attitude towards the poor, he says, why do we not observe that it is their to Christians, benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the holiness of their lives that have done most to increase Christianity. For it is disgraceful when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galilean Christians that is support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. And then he says this, teach those of the Hellenistic faith to contribute to public service of this sort. Isn't that awesome? He was, why can't we be more like those darn Christians? Look! Get your acts together! That's what he's saying. And one more example. Before the advent of modern medicine, there are tremendous public health problems in the cities. Plague in Carthage in 165 AD. A third to a quarter of the people were killed. And literally, people understood contagion, so they just left their loved ones in the streets and they just fled for the hills. Just fled for the hills. What did Christians do? They said, we're not going to have any of that. They stayed in their cities. They brought those with plagues into their homes. And look at what happened. This is an eyewitness account of somebody who writes, Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of their neighbor. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And many died, for they were infected by their neighbors. This is so powerful to me. Did you just hear that? Many died because they were infected by their neighbors. But when they departed life, they did so serenely and cheerfully. Accepting their pain. I've said to you guys many times, one of the most powerful apologetic or witness to the Christian faith was how Christians handled suffering. 
I can't think of more things more powerful today than seeing Christians handle suffering. And the reason why these Christians handled the suffering that they did, this inner poise comes into their lives. This assurance comes into their lives. So they looked at cost, sacrifice, danger, totally differently. They looked at their neighbors. They looked at the needs around them. And regardless of the cost, regardless of the sacrifice, regardless of what it meant for them even in their lives, the Christians looked at it and said, we know Jesus. And it changed their world. Amen. 99.9% of us will never be involved in politics and legislation, run for office. That's not what most Christians did. The way they changed their culture, the way they became revolutionaries, just vast numbers of them said, every day in my life, because of this inner poise that comes into my life, because I know Jesus, and this powerful laying down of my power, my life, my resources in service of others. Christians change their world. And I could hope that it would change ours as well. So, where did we get the power to do this? Where do you get the power to do this? Answer? The gospel, of course. Come on. Jeez. Where do you see it? I saw this for the first time this week. And I was just like, Poof. look at verse 6. See, you can come on up. Now it was the custom of the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. Verse 7. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he actually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to them. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Verse 12. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate asked, what do I do with the king of the Jews? Should I release him? What should I do? The answer of the crowd is what? Substitution. Substitution. What do you mean to do with him? What has he done? The crowd doesn't even answer. We don't care. Crucify him. Crucify him. Substitution. Church, are you with me? Substitution. Barabbas, guilty, insurrectionist, murderer. What do you mean to do with him? We don't care. Jesus innocent, righteous. Crucify him. Let the guilty murderer go. And let the innocent, righteous one pay.
that the guilty murderer insurrectionists go and let the innocent righteous one pay substitution is there a clear way for Mark to say to you and to me 2,000 years later do you want to know what happened that day the innocent one was punished and the punishment the punishable one went free on Jesus falls our guilt our sin our evil in the world. It's all his. The other guy doesn't have a quarter to his name. You notice in the account in Mark chapter 12? Whose image is it? Um, I don't have a quarter. Somebody give me a quarter. One guy claiming to kingship all the quarters in the world, all the power in the world. One guy without even a quarter to his name, with nothing seemingly. And this Jesus, this Jesus, this king dies on the cross, becomes guilty, takes our sin, takes our evil. Why? For a political statement? Why? As a wonderful example? No! He does it for you! And he does it for me! He does it for you. He does it for me. Not to make a political statement. Not to come in as example. He does it for you and for me. He gives away all of his wealth and becomes poor so that we could receive the wealth of God's blessing and God's honor. He becomes rejected on the cross so that you and I would never, ever have to worry whether we would be ever rejected or forsaken by God. Substitution. Barabbas goes free. Jesus dies on the cross. Has this hit you? Has this hit you? Has it hit you that Jesus lived a perfect life, the life we should live, and earned the blessing that such a perfect life deserves? But at the end of his life, he dies on the cross. He dies the death that we should have died, that we deserved, and takes our curse. And the good news of the Bible says. That when we believe in him, when we surrender, give up control of our lives, trying to maintain control of our when we surrender to him and we confess our sins to him and we believe that he died and rose, a great exchange takes place. The guilty becomes innocent and the innocent became guilty. 
Are you a Christian? This isn't just a mental exercise this morning going, that's very interesting. This is what it means. You and I serve a king who wins through losing, who comes to wealth via giving everything away. And when this king comes into your life, it results inevitably in an upside down pattern for living in terms of how you live, which makes you radically generous, radically sacrificial, radically holy. Let me put this last slide up here. The world out there lives, lives. The kingdom of Caesar, the kingdom of man, the kingdom of the world lives for these things. Power, recognition, success, significance. That's the kingdom of the world. And the Bible says when this king without a quarter who wins the losing comes wealth giving away, comes into your life, you embrace a radical countercultural way of living. And this is the reason why the society changed 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and our culture today has to change. Ask yourself honestly this question. Have you embraced this different king who came to us in a different kingdom? Do you still live for these things? Do you have to have them? Do you make your life decisions based on them? Are your relationships only with people who have these things, can get you these things and provide you these things? Christian follower of Jesus, this is not just a conceptual intellectual exercise. Christian follower of Jesus, if you follow this king who comes to usher in a totally different kingdom, what does your life, what does my life look like? Can we be this radical force that would transform our culture for Jesus? With this inner poise and laying down our power, laying down our success, laying down our significance, laying down and radical service to our world. That's what Jesus came to die for. That's what Jesus on Easter Sunday rose for. What about you? And what about me? Let's pray. so powerfully invaded your life 